church isn't something we do. It's not something we attend. The church is who we are. What we do inside these walls is important. What we do outside these walls is important because we are the church. And this morning, in between the end of our last series and the beginning of next week's new series, I I just want to talk for a few minutes about the glorious church. Following the resurrection, the next big moment on the biblical timeline came 50 days later, and it was the beginning of the church. Now, we don't celebrate it like we celebrate the resurrection. I get that. And some people actually dismiss the whole thing as being rather inconsequential because they don't see the church as being all that important. But they may be surprised to learn that Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God puts a very great emphasis on the church, even with all of her problems. As a matter of fact, the entire book of Acts is written about the beginning of and the early ministry of the church in the first century. And you say, yeah, but that Acts really isn't as important as some of the rest of the writings. Really? Who would you say is the most prolific New Testament writer? If you had to guess, who would you say has written more of the New Testament than anybody else? Yeah, that's what most people say, Paul. They're wrong. Luke. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts combined together, Luke wrote both of those, exceed the writings of Paul by about 5,000 words. As a matter of fact, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts itself is longer than Matthew or Mark or John in those separate gospels. If the church is not very important, then why would the Lord have wanted so much of his word devoted to church history? And then, of course, you got to add to that fact that the letters of Paul were written to the church to encourage the church or instruct the church, written to church leaders on how to lead the church. And of course, the book of Revelation is written to remind the church that in the tough times of life, the victory has already been won. So if you take the book of Acts out and you take out all the letters to the church and you take out the book of Revelation, which is an encouragement for the church, all you're left with is the Gospels. I find it hard to believe It seems to be out of the character of Jesus to make the bulk of his New Testament applied to something so irrelevant, doesn't it? Now, I contend this morning that the church really does matter to the Lord, and therefore, it ought to really matter to us. Is it perfect? Of course not. I'm here. You're here. As long as we're here, it isn't going to be perfect. All right, there is no such thing as a perfect church. And not everyone in the church, I realize, is genuine. I know that there are some who attend with poor motives. Uh, You show me any government, any club, any civic organization where everyone is genuine and perfectly motivated, and I'll change my tune. But you see, if a human being is involved, it's going to be flawed. And since none of us are perfect... Let's stop pointing fingers at the church for being imperfect as if we have no blame in the situation. I know not every song that we sing is your favorite. 
I, not, I know that not every sermon that is preached thrills your heart and mind and soul. Ed Bowsman, who was a well-known preacher when I was just getting started in ministry, said this in a sermon one time. He said, every service and sermon might not be a feast, but if you listen closely, you could at least get some crumbs. Someone on the way out of the service shook his hand and said, thanks, Ed, for the crummy sermon this morning. <laughs> I know sometimes you get a crummy sermon. I get that. And I know that not every service meets your needs where you are. I also know that some of you have been hurt by a congregation sometime in your past. And I know that at times in history, the church has dropped the ball on important matters. I know that the church can become self-centered and lukewarm. Such was the case with several of the churches addressed in the book of Revelation. So that's nothing new. But she is still, she is still the bride of Christ, the one for whom he laid down his life. And whenever I read this beautiful description of the Lord's relationship with his church in the book of Ephesians, I am reminded of what true love is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I love the church this morning with all of her problems because Jesus loves the church. We are, after all, his bride. I love my wife. Elsie and I are coming up on 39 years of marriage in June. We aren't perfect. I know that. I've got my faults, and she knows I've got my faults. <laughs> but if you ever say to me, I like you, I just don't care so much for your wife, and you expect me to be okay with that, you better think again, and you better duck. <laughs> so when I hear people say, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church, I wonder if they realize how offensive that is to the Lord. I, I know it's a popular thing today to bash the church. It's too old-fashioned. It's too contemporary. It's too shallow. It's way too deep. It asks too much of me. It doesn't ask enough of me. It's not friendly enough, so I don't feel comfortable. It's way too outgoing, so I don't feel comfortable. Today, the church is accused of being irrelevant, uncaring, selfish, legalistic, homophobic, intolerant, hypocritical, judgmental, apathetic, out of touch, and the list goes on. But if that's true, if that's true, then how has the church survived and flourished through the last 2,000 years? If it is so inadequate, inadequate, what keeps it going from generation to generation to generation? Maybe it's because in our criticalness, we are looking at only one small facet of the church. Sure, the church has got problems. But what about the positives? Did you know that the, that the church on the American frontier started 106 of the first 108 colleges in this country? I've told you before, the first seven presidents of Indiana University were all preachers. 
Take another look around the country. As a group, who was responsible for starting the most hospitals, homes for the elderly, orphanages, crisis pregnancy centers, inner city missions, helping to rescue those who are enslaved in the sex trafficking industry, and so much more? It's not the atheistic societies, it's the church. When there is a natural disaster in the states or around the world, who is the first to respond with a gift, financial gift, and with boots on the ground? It is most often the church. I've read over and over again that when there is a natural disaster, those who come from churches tend to do more and do it quicker than government agencies that are sometimes bogged down with so much bureaucracy. Who consistently teaches and models moral values which provide an ethical foundation for happy homes and for responsible businesses? It's the church. We won't take time to talk about food pantries and backpacks and gently used clothing and mentoring and quality daycare and global outreach that changes the world. Why didn't anybody talk about this? Well, I think for one thing, most congregations strive to follow the Lord's example and not be guilty of bragging rights. I mean, Jesus taught us to be humble. He was humble himself. It's a little hard to toot your own horn in honor of Jesus Christ. And as to some forms of media, deeds of goodness do not always make good lead stories at 11 o'clock. But that's not the motive for what we do or why we do it. It's not to have pats on the back from the world. It's to do the right thing because it's the right thing and we're the bride of Christ. Jesus taught us to be salt and light, not resounding gongs or clanging cymbals as Paul talks about in Corinthians. I like what Bob Russell wrote. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, and salt does not get much credit. No one ever gets up from the table licking his lips and raving, that was the best salt I ever tasted. (laughs) No, salt quietly adds flavor and enhances the taste of almost everything without getting much recognition. So if you don't hear much about the good stuff the church does, that's okay. The Lord knows what his bride is up to, and that's enough. But I'm telling you, the Lord's not done with his church. It's not coming to an end. The Bible tells us that the church will be here throughout all time. It is that soul-saving institution. And when the church finds itself in the dark moments, that's when it can shine brightest. Whitney Capp, speaker and author, wrote this. She said, our best days are ahead because the days are getting darker and the bride of Christ is radiant. Even on her worst days, she still shines. Revelation 19.9 says, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Someday, someday, folks, the bride is going home, and what a party it will be. The church, when we get home, will be celebrated. But if you're not in love with the church here, Will you be able to enjoy a party there? Will you even be invited to the party there? The heart of the matter isn't just what the church is doing in culture and around the world. The heart of the matter is the difference that the church can make in your life and my life. Several years ago, uh, uh, American Express Uh, card used the slogan to advertise their newest credit card membership has its privileges now it was a sort of a subtle message to suggest if you have an American Express card you're going to get privileges that other people who use some other kind of a credit card won't 
have. And, and that resonates with most people. We Americans want the best deal for the lowest dollar. And so we like that kind of a thought. You know, and after all, in our mind, if you're a member of something, there should be certain privileges. That's part of the reason why I really don't like the term church membership. I understand what we're trying to convey. It means belonging to the church. But the word membership denotes in some people's minds, hey, there ought to be some privilege for being a member of the church. I mean, after all, for a member, it should be a 7% tithe, not a 10% tithe. <laughs> we who are members ought to get first chance at leftover communion bread. And if I'm a member, I should have my own pew where I can sit week in and week out. I'm not real crazy about the word membership. I like the word partner, our partnership better, because partner denotes, well, a relationship with God that we are partnering with him in his work and a relationship with others where we are partnering together to get the job done. And, and don't, don't misunderstand me. We do have some privileges in the church. We have the privilege to love one another and to be loved by one another. We have the privilege of serving together, worshiping together, growing together. Those are our privileges. Let me just give you a few ways that I believe the church, and, and I'm hoping that Sherwood Oaks in particular, can, can make a difference in your life and in my life. I, I'm just going to real quickly give you three pictures of the church and then two challenges for the church. Okay? Here's the first picture. The church is family. I love being part of a family. I love being a husband, a dad. A grandfather, a son. All those images conjure up different aspects of family life. And family life is such a gift from God. And all of the joy of family life applies to life in the church. I hurt for those who don't feel like they have family. A few years ago when I taught for a week in Moldova, I, I landed in Kishno and was picked up by a young man that I had uh, never met before. I wasn't even sure who was going to pick me up at the, at the airport, and he drove me to the to the school. Now the school was uh, nobody was there over the weekend except for the custodian, uh, and and they told me don't leave the school, don't go out on the streets. It's it's not real safe to do that. And so they took me. The custodian took me to a room that would be my room for the next seven days, uh, eight days while I stayed there. And on Saturday and Sunday, I was I was by myself. On the desk was a bottle of water, a wedge of cheese, and a small loaf of bread, and that was. My, that was my food for Saturday and Sunday. I can tell you this morning, uh, I don't think I have ever felt as lonely and homesick as I did on that Saturday and Sunday when I had nobody. I didn't know anything, couldn't speak the language, couldn't leave the place. Whew. It, it was almost overwhelming, except for one moment. And that is on Sunday morning, I was picked up and taken to church. I couldn't sing the songs because I couldn't understand them. I didn't understand the sermon. But I watched with intensity everything around me because in those moments I felt I was home. I was with family. Because you see, when people who love the same Lord that you love, who sing his praises, who open up his word, who believe what you believe, when you come together with people, even when you cannot understand them, you're among friends and family, and there's a sense of joy, and there was a sense of peace, and there was a sense of comfort because I was home. Wherever you are in the world, when you are with the family of God, you are home. Now, we have students that come from all across the state, across the country, and across the world here in Bloomington. And, and more than any place else, I want them to feel at home here at Sherwood Oaks. Because if they 
are a follower of Jesus Christ. This is family. No matter what your language, no matter what your culture, no matter what your background, no matter what your ethnicity, we are family. And I love that picture. A family suggests a sense of belonging. To whom do I go when I'm discouraged and hurting? My family. Who gives me a kick in the pants when I'm feeling sorry for myself? My family. Who will come to my defense when I've been abandoned by everybody else? My family. And the kingdom of God is like that too. Helps keep us balanced. Helps keep us encouraged. That's why I think life groups are so important. If you're here and you're not a part of a life group, man, that is, that is the basic way to get started into this family atmosphere. You see, there's nothing like family, so family should become a priority for us. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. So don't give up getting together as family because it's encouraging. Here's the second picture. The church is a team where I participate, not just spectate. The church is not like attending a basketball game or a football game and sitting in the stands cheering those who are on the court or on the field. We are a team. The New Testament compares the church to a body, all the members of a body working together in harmony to make sure that the body works in a healthy manner. And could you this morning name all the ministers at Sherwood Oaks? Because I can't. I, I know a lot of you. But I don't know everybody's name here because you see, everybody who is here in the family is also a minister. We all serve together. As a team, we love and make a difference for Jesus Christ in this world. And here's a really interesting thing. Jesus said in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't heal the sick. I can't raise the dead. I can't turn water into wine like Jesus did. That's not what he's talking about. When Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, he was limited to that region of Judea and Galilee. But his family now is worldwide. The great work that we do in partnership with him is we take his message everywhere we go. That's the value of partnership. And you say, well, I can't do much. I'm too small. I'm too insignificant to make a difference. Really? There is nobody too insignificant or too small. We're all insignificant when it comes to what God wants to do. But God takes great joy in using insignificant folks to do significant things. And if you think you're too small to make a difference, well, consider this African proverb. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. <laughs> Little tiny mosquito can make a big difference when you can't get away from it. True servants see potential, not problems. What would you say would be the most worthless piece of real estate in the world? Some might suggest it's the Dead Sea. I mean, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. Nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. Nothing lives around the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea itself. I mean, it is just seemingly worthless. But engineers have discovered that if the potash around the Dead Sea could be mixed and distributed, there would be enough fertilizer to create a supply to cover the whole surface of the earth for five years. You think it looks like it has no potential, but look at the power of what's even there at the Dead Sea. Don't look at the circumstances around you and say, that's a dead end. It may be the most potentially powerful thing you can do. 
The church has great potential if we work as a team. And a team also suggests accountability in this world of temptation. You need somebody holding your feet to the fire. I need somebody holding my feet to the fire. And, and, and if we aren't accountable, if we're not plugged into the life of the church, then how are we going to live out this passage from Hebrews 13? Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. God is saying, I have placed leadership in the church to help you survive in this life. And if you're not a part of the church, how will you be accountable? To whom will you be accountable in this life? Here's the third picture. The church is an avenue of worship. Worship isn't limited to what happens here on Sunday morning. Worship is a lifestyle. John R. W. Stott wrote, he said, Our greatest claim to nobility is our created capacity to know God, to be in personal relationship with him, to love him, and to worship him. Indeed, we are most truly human when we are on our knees before our creator. Timothy Christensen wrote, he said, If worship is just one thing we do, everything becomes mundane. If worship is the one thing we do, everything takes on eternal significance. Our lives should be a life of worship lived out for God. Now, having said that, I don't want you to miss the importance of what we do here on a Sunday morning. When people say, oh, I don't need to come to church. I can be just as worshipful outdoors in God's wonderful creation. Sounds nice. It just doesn't preach. It's not biblical. There, there is something about the family coming together. I mean, you know, no family acts that way. No husband and wife acts that way. Ah, I'm married. Yes, I just don't need to be around him ever. You know, I, no marriage can survive that way. Now, I'm real excited that with current technology, we are able to stream our worship services. And if you're worshiping online with us this morning, I'm delighted that you're worshiping with us. We're, we're, we're thrilled to death that you tune in. And I know sometimes when you're on travel, you can do that. And I know sometimes if you're on vacation, you can't find a church to worship with, you can tune in uh, online. Um, I, I know that if you are maybe uh, at home recuperating from a surgery or you're... Um, you're in a nursing facility and, and you can't get out to actually come here. That that is a wonderful backup. But that is not a substitute for being here and being among one another. I mean, when you're watching online, it's one thing. But you can't take communion with everybody in the body. You can't be getting a pat on the back or a hug or a handshake from people in the body. You can't be encouraged and lifted up. There is something that happens for me on a Sunday morning when I come. By the time I leave at 12 o'clock, I know there's been somewhere close to 3,000 people here. And I walk out thinking, wow, there are 3,000 other people who think like I think, who believe like I believe, who love Jesus Christ like I do. I am not alone in this world. There is something about the power of coming together that you cannot, you cannot overemphasize. George Washington once wrote to his nephew, Burwell Bassett. George Washington said this, he said, I was favored with your letter on a certain 25th of July when you ought to have been in church. Could you but behold with what religious zeal I get to church on every Lord's Day? It would do your heart good and fill it with hope 
and, and I hope with equal fervency. Don't you love that? You know, you sh I liked your letter, but you should have been in church. <laughs> kind of makes you wish George Washington was running for president again this year, doesn't it? So. <laughs> and if we like worship here, it prepares our heart for worship there. But if we don't like getting together with the body of Christ there, how are we going to enjoy worship in heaven? It may not mean anything here. Is it going to mean anything there? Okay, here's, here's two quick challenges. I, I love these pictures. Family, team, worship. But there are a couple challenges that we dare not overlook. And the first challenge is simply this. The church challenges us to authenticity. Authentic character matters. And character cannot be bought, borrowed, traded for, conferred, imported, or inherited. It must be homegrown. Now, there is a classic American idiom that some of you may be familiar with that talks about something or more particularly someone being authentic. And it's, and it's the words, oh, he's the real McCoy. Do you ever wonder how we got that? Uh, back in the days of steam locomotives, keeping the bearings lubricated was a major problem until an inventor by the name of Elijah McCoy patented a lubricating device in 1872 that was so successful, the problem went away. Others tried to imitate it, illegally so, and they came up with inferior products to the point that engineers would insist on their locomotives they had the real McCoy. Today, you are most likely to hear the term plastic in reference to, well, a lack of genuineness or phoniness. I'm not sure that's fair to plastic to use it in that kind of terminology, but that's the, that's the word that is popular. It means the same thing. You see, God desires that we be genuine people to live authentic lives wherever we go. After all, that's his character. It ought to be our character. Sincere, authentic people are trustworthy. They make good friends. They remain constant in times of trouble. Imitations are a dime a dozen. Don't be plastic. You be the real McCoy because the one thing that destroys a person's desire to know Jesus Christ and to be a part of his kingdom is when they meet a Christian who's phony from top to bottom. The challenge is, if we love Jesus Christ and we love his bride, the church, to be an authentic part of it. Here's the second challenge. That is the church challenges us to surrender. The old hymn, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Is it true in our lives? Many don't like the word surrender. It, you know, it, it means to surrender your authority to somebody else's authority. It, it, it's sort of seen sometimes as a move of weakness or a move of defeat. But sometimes I'm here to tell you that surrender actually is a gift of life. In 1862, John T. Wilder, colonel of the Indiana 17th Infantry Regiment, commanded a small Union force of 4,000 soldiers, and they were surrounded by Confederate troops under the leadership of General Braxton Bragg, who had 22,000 troops. But Wilder didn't know exactly what the, what the odds were. So he did something really unique. I'm not sure it happened before that. I don't know if it ever happened after that. He, under a flag of truce, went out into the middle of the field, was blindfolded, was taken to General Bragg's tent where he asked the general, he said, I'm up against it. 
I have no idea what's going on here with your troops and mine. I, I want your advice, General. Should I fight this one out or should I surrender? They took the blindfold off of him and General Braxton Bragg pointed to the cannon that were lined up on the ridge. And he started counting, got to 46 and stopped counting and surrendered his troops. All 4,000 lived. General Wilder went on, or Colonel Wilder went on to, to do some heroic things later on in the Civil War. But on that day, the best decision he ever made was to surrender for the sake of life. The Bible says that Jesus surrendered to death, even death on a cross, that we might have life. And he invites us to surrender to him so that we might have life as well.